The scripture reading is from Romans 8. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Because through Christ Jesus, the law of the Spirit who gives life has set you free from the law of sin and death. For what the law was powerless to do because it was weakened by the flesh, God did by sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh to be a sin offering. And so he condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fully met in us, who do not live according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. Those who live according to the flesh have their minds set on what the flesh desires, but those who live in accordance with the Spirit have their minds set on what the Spirit desires. The mind governed by the flesh is death, but the mind governed by the Spirit is life and peace. The mind governed by the flesh is hostile to God. It does not submit to God's law, nor can it do so. Those who are in the realm of the flesh cannot please God. You, however, are not in the realm of the flesh, but are in the realm of the Spirit, if indeed the Spirit of God lives in you. And if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, they do not belong to Christ. But if Christ is in you, then even though your body is subject to death because of sin, the Spirit gives life because of righteousness. And if the Spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead is living in you, he who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies because of his Spirit who lives in you. This is God's Word. Good morning. My name's uh, Phil. I'm the Associate Minister here. It's lovely to have you with us as we dip into Romans 8 this week. Let's pray for God's help as we do so. Father God, very simply, we pray that you would show us the wonderful things that are in your word this morning. We ask this by the power of the Spirit and in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Well, welcome to Romans 8. Now, all of the Bible is inspired. All of it, every last word, Jesus says so. But not all of it is equally inspiring, if we're honest. Uh, The list of families in the tribal camps in Numbers 3, when understood correctly, is edifying and helpful to the Christian believer. But Romans 8, by contrast, is just thrilling when we grasp what it teaches. If Scripture is is a great, glorious mountain range, then Romans 8 is Everest soaring, majestic, lofty, taking us as close to heaven as we can get whilst we are in this life and on this world. And as we go through the chapter, we're going to follow a journey. It begins, as we've seen already, with no condemnation from the wrath of God in verse 1, and it ends with no separation from the love of God in verse 39. There are two great aims within those 39 verses. Assurance and hope. Assurance that we are forgiven and that if you trust in Jesus, you are loved by God, that you are his child. And hope that if you trust in Christ, you will make it to his eternal paradise. So two great aims. And if you want one central theme, a summary for the whole of Romans 8, then I think you can summarize with just this phrase. Look to Christ live by the Spirit. There you go. We'll see it again and again. Look to Christ, live by the Spirit. That's Romans 8. Learn to look to Christ and live by the Spirit. 
But to really grasp how good Romans 8 is, we need to remember how Romans 7 ended. Romans 8 doesn't just descend from heaven. As one chapter, it forms part of an argument. Now, Romans 7 warns really of a danger that, well, I think most Christians fall into, especially early on in the Christian faith. As we start to follow Jesus and we, we read the Bible more and more, we become more and more aware as we, as we read of how beautiful Jesus is, how amazingly holy God is. We become more and more aware of this great chasm between God's commands God's standards, Jesus' life, his example, and the mucky reality of me. And Romans 7 shows the angst and the despair that comes when we, when we start to judge my relationship with God by how well I'm doing obeying his commands. When I obsess about the law of God, when, when I judge everything by how well I'm doing there, well, I become discouraged. And I despair because God's standards are perfect and we are not. And the cry at the end of Romans 7, if you look there, it is really the great liturgy of the Christian soul. Every true believer does at some point know the frustration and the despair. of I want to obey God. I really do. But I just don't seem to be able to. We keep failing and so we cry, what a wretched man or woman I am. Who will rescue me from this body that is just subject to death? And the result is that many of us go through times in our Christian life when we're just tempted to give up. Or many of us who are standing on the edge of the Christian life, we're worried that it's not worth us diving in. We feel perhaps the, the fight with sinful desires is a battle where just always I'm outgunned. It's not a fair fight. I'm too sinful, too worldly, too much of a failure, therefore, to be a real Christian. Or maybe you look around and look at other Christians and they look so holy and you look down at the Bible and see the perfect standards of God and you just think, I just could never do that. I mean, I could never live that way. And so you stay on the periphery, never really committing yourself to Christ. Or perhaps you live with the fear that eventually God's patience is going to wear thin. He's been forgiving me for day after day after day after day, and eventually he's just, you know what, enough. And I'll be rejected. Or do you have that experience that the Christian life is like walking on a tightrope, wobbling away, just hoping that you don't fall? And eventually you get just tired, weary, exhausted by the fight. And tempted just sack it. Well, Romans 8 has good news for those who are weary. Good news for those who fear they can't make it. We'll find there is real help as we live the Christian life in the present. And there is certain hope as we look to God's promised future. As we learn to look to Christ and live by the Spirit. Okay, let's get into the text. So firstly, made righteous by Jesus' death to live righteously by Jesus' spirit. Verse 1, therefore there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. No condemnation. That's God's promise to you if you trust in Jesus. Come judgment day, in other words, when it is your turn to stand before the throne of Almighty God. When you stand in front of those blazing eyes that can see to the very depths of the human soul. 
when your life is in the hands of the one who created the furthest flung galaxies, you need not fear. In spite of the filth and the wickedness and the selfishness and the idolatry, you can have unshakable confidence, absolute assurance that you'll be fine, that God will smile warmly and welcome you in if you are in Christ. Now, that little phrase at the end of verse 1, in Christ Jesus, it appears over 160 times in the New Testament, and it is the most basic description of the Christian, the follower of Jesus, the believer, whatever else we want to call it, in Christ. And why it is that those who are in Christ can be confident of salvation, Paul now explains. Firstly, verse 2, because through Christ Jesus, the law of the Spirit who gives life has set you free from the law of sin and death. Now, by law, Paul means here a ruling power. Now, you think of the Western movie with the evil rancher who says, I'm the law around here. It means I rule. This is my territory. I determine what happens and you are under my power. That's what verse 2 is about. The law of sin and the law of death, they rule us. The law of sin, the, the, the foolish, wicked, shameful, wrongful things that we do and that we can't stop ourselves doing. We're ruled by this power of sin and death. As those who reject the God of life, death rules over us. Our destiny is death and there's nothing we can do to escape the power of sin and the power of death. But a new law rides into town like Clint Eastwood in the Western. The law of the Spirit who gives life. And he arrives and he breaks the power of the law of sin and the law of death and sets you free from the oppressive rule. Okay, but how do we get set free? Well, verse 3, Paul introduces us to another way of speaking about the law. For what the law was powerless to do because it was weakened by the flesh, God did by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh to be a sin offering. And so he condemned sin in the flesh. Not the law of sin or the law of death, but just law, the law. In other words, the law of God, the commands of the Bible. Now, God's laws, his commands, they are, they are healthy, they are wise, they are life-giving. They are the best and only way to flourish as a human being. Um, if you like, they're like a really good diet and exercise plan. This is the way to be healthy and, and, and wholesome and to live well. The problem is, in our sin, we're like heroin addicts. Our addiction has ruined us. Now, there's nothing wrong with the diet, the exercise plan, but our bodies are just too weak and damaged, and our wills are so enslaved by addiction that we can't follow the diet and the exercise plan. It's like that with sin. The problem is not the law. The law is good. It shows us the best way to live, but we're just too sin-addicted. And we're too sin-damaged to be able to follow God's law. And so we need help from the outside to break in. And in verse 3, that help comes as God's Son comes in the likeness of a sinner. In other words, as a human. doesn't sin himself, but he comes as a sin offering. In other words, as Jesus is put to death on the cross, God is condemning sin in a human in our place. Now, that is why you need to be in Christ. You see, here's the point, and this is why in Christ matters. Jesus died to absorb the wrath of God for sin. You 
did not. Jesus rose to new life, triumphing over death. You did not. Jesus ascended to the right hand of God, accepted into his presence in heaven. You and I did not. Uh, The theologian uh, John Calvin famously explained in these words, we must understand that as long as Christ remains outside of us and we are separated from him, all that he has suffered and done for the salvation of the human race remains useless and of no value to us. But when you put your trust in Jesus, when you believe in Jesus, the Holy Spirit so unites us to Christ that we're described as in him. Ephesians 1.13 says, you were included in Christ when you heard the message of truth and believed. His death becomes our death, paying for our sins. His resurrection becomes our life. His relationship with God the Father becomes ours, so we are children of God. And so... It's not, well, you can think on balance of probability, it'll go all right on Judgment Day. No, you can be absolutely certain. You will be welcomed. Imagine um, you're waiting for results. Uh, The verdict is something that really, really matters, whether it's a, a job application or medical tests or an exam or an answer about a relationship, whatever. This one really matters. You've staked your future on this. And there's nothing you can do but just wait for the results to come in. Then 9 p.m. one night, bing, message comes in. I'll give you the answer in the morning. How do you sleep? What if someone appears with a time machine? Realistic, I know. Someone appears with a time machine and takes you to the next morning and shows you celebrating. It was good news. They said, yes, all clear. The job's yours. And then takes you back in the time machine and deposits you at 9.01 p.m. the night before. How do you sleep now? Slightly different. I might have a a wee tipple. And sleep like like a baby? No, you're learning that. No, sleep like a log. You'll sleep beautifully because you've already seen what the result is. If you're in Christ, you can have assurance of God's love and acceptance. Because when you read that Jesus rose from the dead and ascended into heaven... It's like getting in a time machine and seeing your ascension and your acceptance because you are in Christ. As you read of him rising to life, you are reading death cannot hold you. As you read of him being accepted into heaven as he ascends, you are reading of God the Father welcoming you on judgment day. In him, your sins have been punished. In him, your death has been defeated. In him, your welcome into the presence of God Almighty has taken place. In Christ, there is no condemnation, only assurance. Okay, future looks great if you look to Christ. What about the present? Is the Christian message, Jesus has dealt with your guilt and has guaranteed you heaven, but you're on your own for this life and just kind of wallow around in the mess of your sin until Jesus returns. Well, not at all. It's much better. And that is where the Holy Spirit comes in. Verse 4. In order that, well, come back to verse 3. And so he condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirements of the law might be fully met in us who do not live according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. God still cares how you and I live. He hates sin. 
And he set us free from the power of sin through Jesus for that very reason that his spirit might come and live in us now and enable us to walk in righteousness and away from sin, to live godly, meaningful, fruitful lives for his glory. That's what he means by the law being fulfilled in us who walk by the Spirit. He's saying the Spirit enables us to live out the law, not so that we can be judged by our own good works, but so that we can enjoy the blessing of living God's way, honoring him. He gave us his Son to make us righteous, and he gave us his Spirit to enable us to live out that righteousness. And then Paul is going to spend the next 25 verses really unpacking how the Spirit helps us live to please God. And the crucial thing to grasp in the section we're looking at this morning is that this is encouragement, not challenge. This is not, here's stuff you better do. It's, here's what God is doing in you. So you can sit back, as long as you still listen. You're not about to learn a whole heap of stuff you better do. God is going to tell us what he has done, what he is doing and what he will do. So secondly, already the spirit is transforming your mind. Now verses five to eight, they set up this radical contrast between the life of the flesh and the life of the spirit. And by flesh, he means uh, sinful nature, sinful desires. It's not a contrast as we look at these verses, not going to be a contrast between the physical and the spiritual. The contrast is between worldly sinful desires and the desires of the Holy Spirit. Let's see. Verse 5. Those who live according to the flesh have their minds set on what the flesh desires, but those who live in accordance with the Spirit have their minds set on what the Spirit desires. Now, Paul's point here is not where you can be the kind of Christian who is just really fleshly and sins a lot, or you can be the kind of super Christian who lives in the power of the Spirit and does what is right and good. He's saying, when you become a Christian, the Holy Spirit lives in you and a radical change takes place. He's not saying there are two different kinds of Christian lives out there. He's saying there is one kind of Christian, the one who has the Holy Spirit in, and the Holy Spirit dramatically transforms you. You become a different person with different desires and therefore different behaviors. And so verses 6 to 8 will then put this in stark terms. It says, look, unless you put your trust in Jesus and receive the Holy Spirit, you just can't live for God and please him. Verse 6, the mind governed by the flesh is death, but the mind governed by the spirit is life and peace. The mind governed by the flesh is hostile to God. It does not submit to God's law, nor can it do so. Those who are in the realm of the flesh cannot please God. I cannot stop myself from liking pepperoni pizza. I just can't. And therefore, should somebody pass a law saying that thou shalt not eat pepperoni pizza in that 21st century language, I will not be able to comply perfectly. I may be able to uh, resist at times, abstain occasionally, but I can't stop the fact that every time I walk past Franco Manga, the desire takes a hold of me and I want to eat pizza. And we're like that with sinful desires. We can say no sometimes. We have a willpower. But there will always be an addiction that means I will always disobey at some point. Likewise, I can't make myself enjoy the taste of mushrooms. Uh, I can make myself eat them. I have. You know, they're, you know, they're perfectly edible sometimes, well disguised. But I can't make myself enjoy eating them. I can't delight in it. My heart will never be in a mushroom meal. 
And you and I cannot please God without the help of his Spirit. We might be able to do individual actions which obey God, and that are good and right, but there'll never be that heart desire to delight in God, to do things for his glory and his honor, and so we won't be able to please him. But the Spirit changes that. And as Paul talks about the work of the Spirit here, he's not talking about some massive upgrade in the strength of our willpower. You know, before I put my trust in Jesus, I could resist sin this much, and now I can resist this much. He's talking about something far more radical. He's talking about a change in our hearts. I am not the same old me with the same old desires. There are now new desires within me. We're being transformed from the inside out. Not a law from the outside telling me what to do, but a spirit from the inside changing what I want. Now, Paul does talk about minds, you'll notice. It's all about minds in this section. But the word is slightly broader than just intellectual thinking. It's closer to, to mindset, you know, a fundamental outlook and appetites. That's what's in view here, which is why in verse 5 it's linked to desires in order that the righteous requirements... Um, sorry, it, will have their mindset on what the flesh desires or what the spirit desires. And this is why you see that Romans 8 is just better news than Romans 7, because Romans 8 tells us we live by the spirit, not by the law. The law is outside. It's good. It tells us to obey God. The spirit works from the inside, making us want to obey God. Now, often, I think the, the experience of resisting sinful desires is basically like this. It's like sinful desires are an engine that is driving us towards sinful action. And our willpower is the brakes that are holding back. And, and we can hold on for a while, but eventually, eventually the desires are too strong or the willpower slips off the brake and we, we lurch into sinful actions. And so all of life can feel like a depressing battle where the outcome, well, it's inevitable. We are going to end up doing something sinful. The question is just, how long do I hold out for this time? I guess most of us will know it's especially true with sexual sin. Now, when we think about the Holy Spirit, we often think in terms of a massive upgrade to the brakes is what he's doing, to our ability to hold out. But it's too shallow an image. Actually, what happens is, a new engine is put in, driving the other way towards loving and serving and obeying God. And our willpower, if you want to really stretch the analogy, is like the gearbox. <laughs> you know, you can choose whether to engage the sinful desires or the spirit's desires, but there is now the power to do so. And it's not now just a battle between willpower resisting desire. It's a battle between the desire for sin and the desire to obey God. So you see, the, the mark of the Spirit's work in you is not that you no longer feel the stir of sinful desire in you. That is not the mark of the person who is in the Spirit. The mark of the person who is in the Spirit is that alongside the desire to sin, there is now also an inner desire to serve and please God. Already the Spirit is transforming your mind. And then thirdly, soon enough, the Spirit will transform your body. So you're in Christ, verses 1 to 4. That's amazing. <laughs> but perhaps even more amazing, Christ is in you. Verse 9, you, however, are not in the realm of the flesh, but are in the realm of the Spirit, if indeed the Spirit of God lives in you. 
And if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, they don't belong to Christ. Here is proof of the effectiveness of your forgiveness. God now looks at you and says, you look clean enough and pure enough for me to come and live in you. The holy God. If you put your trust in Christ, that's how God views you. And so his spirit comes to live in us. And the wonderful thing about that is, is the hope that it brings. Verse 10. This section is all about hope. But if Christ is in you, then even though your body is subject to death because of sin, the Spirit gives life because of righteousness. And if the Spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead is living in you, he who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies because of his Spirit who lives in you. Here's the answer to the despairing cry of Romans 7. Who will rescue me from this body that is subject to death? Well, God will by his spirit. The daily lived experience of battling sinful desires and of increasing bodily frailty is not what defines you. If the Holy Spirit who brought Jesus back to life is living in you, then you too will rise. It's like um, the Holy Spirit and the flesh, the sinful nature, are, are two lodgers living inside us. When I first moved to London, I had two housemates, very, very different size. One was about uh, eight and a half stone. The other was closer to 18 stone. Big, big unit. Um, or for those of you who speak different currency, kind of 50 kilos and 110 kilos. You know, very, very different. Had, the, had we ever sort of not been able to resolve uh, a household dispute about who should get their way and it, re- and it reverted, as boys sometimes do, to the law of the jungle, there would have been no question as to who would win. And he would beat Rick. Uh, He was twice his size. It wouldn't have been much of a competition. Always going to end that way. In Romans 8, we're seeing that there are two lodgers living in you, if you like, if you're a Christian. There is the sinful nature and there is the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit, he'd be surprised to hear this, trust me. He was more like my friend Andy. He's a big unit. He's immensely powerful. And he is going to win the dispute about whether you go to heaven or hell. There's no question about that. He is immeasurably powerful. The last time the Holy Spirit was in somebody, Jesus Christ, he raised him from the dead after three days after he'd been crucified. He'll do the same for you. And actually, he's not a lodger in you. Actually, he is the owner. And he is committed to making something beautiful out of the house. He will raise you and he will boot out the sinful nature. The mark of the Holy Spirit living in you is not that you never sin. We confess our sins every week. We've done it this Sunday because the Bible tells us we will all keep sinning until the day Jesus returns. The mark of the Holy Spirit living in you is that there is now also a desire to obey God, a longing to please God. And the promise of the Holy Spirit is that one day, one day, you will rise free of sin. Look, I think it's, uh, it's too early really to know whether uh, Dishy Rishi has got the answers that uh, Liz didn't seem to when it comes to sorting out the economic mess. Who knows? Who knows? But I'm sure you'll have already noticed that one of the very minor annoyances of 
the economic mess we find ourselves in and very minor annoyances compared with what some people are facing, is that every utility company under the sun and every mobile phone provider is now trying to lure you in with a cost-of-living-busting deal. Pay nothing for three months and we'll even come around and clean your house and cook your meals for you if you sign up to our deal. But then you notice the asterisk. After three months, you revert to £3,000 a month for 10 years and if you fail to make a single payment, we will sell you into slavery. Ah, oh, the, the small print rather changes uh, how good the deal looks. And I do think we're tempted to view Christianity a bit like that. There's the initial offer that lures us in. Jesus pays completely for your sins on the cross. But then we think it comes with an asterisk. He's done his bit, now it's over to you. You better live out perfectly God's incredibly high standards all your days until he returns or you're in trouble. Christianity is... Good news, not good news with an asterisk. It's the good news that in the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, God has done everything necessary for your salvation, everything. It is also the good news that in sending his Holy Spirit to live in you, he has done everything necessary to enable you to live for him the full rich life that he longs for you as you wait for Jesus to return, following the rules of the Bible. I said, you can summarize Romans 8 as look to Christ and live by the Spirit. So look to Christ. When you have fears about whether God will punish you for your sins in the end or for particular sins, when you have doubts about whether you really will be accepted on judgment day, when you feel a... a, a sense of failure about your past, and it just feels like that just defines who you are. When the accuser Satan throws his condemnations and his lies at you, when you're just overwhelmed with weariness and tempted to give up, look to Christ because you are in him. He is your identity. He is your inheritance, and he is your guarantee. In him, you have risen. In him, the Father has accepted you. And rejoice, it's not all down to you in the meantime. Live by the Spirit. Thank God that every morning as you wake up, you don't go into the day just with your resources. So pray for the help of the Spirit each day as you get up. Fill your mind with the truths of Romans 8. Meet regularly with others who will encourage you about what the Spirit is doing. So you will know his spirit is at work transforming your heart and enabling you to obey his word. Look to Christ because you are in him. Live by the spirit because he is in you. He is your power, your help, and he is your hope. Let's pray. Gracious Father, we thank you for the scarcely believable truths of Romans 8 that we are in Christ. And so all that has happened to him is ours and that you, by your Spirit, are in us so that your mighty power lives in us to enable us to walk in your ways. Help us to believe this, that we might rejoice in all that you have done and that the Christian life might not feel like an unbearable burden, but the freedom it truly is. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.